Hello, Namaste. I'm Ruchira Gupta, your host for the podcast A Free Voice. I'm an Emmy-winning journalist who went on to start Apnea, an NGO which works against sex trafficking. I have dedicated my life to amplifying voices of the most marginalized people in the world. I'm also the debut author of scholastic book I Kick and I Fly. In this podcast, I will talk to survivors, activists, and storytellers who use their voice to make a difference in the lives of young people. How does an idea turn into action? How do you change a tragedy into recognizing your own powers? Together, we will examine and reimagine the world we want. Under Hitler, choosing abortion became sabotage, a crime punishable by imprisonment and hard labor for the women and a possible death penalty for the abortionist. It was an act of the individual against the state. An exaggeration in degree but not kind of current fundamentalist arguments that women must have children for Jesus and the church or as the Supreme Court ruled in denying poor women the choice of Medicaid-funded abortion for legitimate government interest. As Hitler wrote, it must be considered as reprehensible conduct to refrain from giving healthy children to the nation. The key word was, of course, healthy. Since non-Aryans were racially impure and thus unhealthy, Jews, Gypsies, Poles and victims of serious handicaps and diseases, in brackets, Hitler was, for instance, obsessed with syphilis, close brackets, were all discharged or prevented from reproducing by methods that varied from segregation of the sexes, threats, labor camps, and forced abortion or sterilization, to imprisonment or death in a concentration camp. The choice of method depended largely on whether and for how long the unhealthy were needed as workers. It also depended on convenience. A pregnant worker was easier to gas than to coerce into an abortion. Interestingly, Hitler also supported capital punishment, quote-unquote, because of its deterrent effect. The only argument among authoritarians is what level and kind of patriarchal power will be supreme, national or international, secular or religious. What all seems to seem to agree on, however, is that the patriarchal family is the basis and training ground for any authoritarianism. It was the basic cell, Keimzell, of the state for Germans, National Socialism. It is the more mixed philosophy of the Eagle Forum. It is just, quote, unquote, the basic unit of society. If we are to identify authoritarianism in all its forms, we must study a three-step progression of authoritarian units quote-unquote, the family, comma, the nation, comma, the very laws of God, close quotes. I just read an extract from Gloria Steinem's essay, If Hitler Were Alive, Whose Side Would He Be On? This essay is published in an anthology that I edited called The Essential Gloria Steinem Reader, As If Women Matter. Today, I will talk to Gloria feminist, philosopher, writer, a leader and a friend to all of us who are part of the women's movement in India, the US and globally about these very issues as we have to deal with them. 
what is this three step progression from the family to the state to god which controls our bodies and is it fiction or is it real how is this hierarchy created and what are meant to be forces of good how are they turned against us and our bodies so gloria uh, you know what i want you to define fascism uh, and uh, you know i've been watching the handmaiden's tale and uh, one of the most chilling scenes for me was when the protesters the women are marching and they are shot and suddenly uh, all these years later i feel it could happen to me when i'm marching on the streets of india and not right now in the us but i feel there are some patterns creeping in into uh, what's going on here which may also lead to the same thing and so i've begun to use the word fascism more and more based on just books i've read and movies i've watched but uh, i don't want to overstate it so i thought i would talk to you because you have such a long um, journey in history of different political upheavals in the world and challenging them that what is fascism and do you see signs of it right now in what ways mm. Well, if we turn to the dictionary, always an interesting idea. <laughs> uh, it says that uh, fascism is a political philosophy or movement or regime uh, that exalts nation and often race above the individual, and that stands for a centralized autocratic government headed by a dictatorial leader, severe economic and social regimentation. and forcible suppression of opposition now i agree with that but uh what it doesn't include is that fascism like all authoritarian patriarchal regimes starts with controlling reproduction and therefore the bodies of women somehow in this definition that may be implied but it's it's not present uh because um in order to uh, normalize uh, a system of oppression you really have to start in the family and also you, a fascist regime wants to control reproduction certainly hitler's regime was totally focused on enlarging the population at least the aryan population uh declaring unpatriotic and and uh you know totally at fault women who didn't have children women who were in the paid labor force and therefore not at home taking care of their children so it was kinder kirke kuchen which was children church kitchen that summed up the role of women i would add that in the dictionary it, uh, but other than that addition i think we can see that it's about all about enshrining a hierarchy based on birth and based on race or class and for me you know i've been thinking about this that what is the hierarchy for is it hierarchy for itself and uh, i feel as if the establishment of hierarchy is to produce violence for the sake of violence and that fascists normally are uh, misogynistic um, hierarchical uh, they like violence for the sake of violence and ultimately the main aim is war because they have some sort of attraction to destruction and hate and um, of course in the classical definition they just say it's about race and about hierarchy and uh, you know the promotion of the race uh, but 
you know, the promotion of the race means what? Like, to what purpose? Like, why would you promote a race? Uh, just to manage other people? Or is there something beyond that? <clears throat> well, it is, it, it has a, a hierarchical base. I mean, first it starts with masculine over feminine. And then it starts with whatever the ruling group is over whatever the inferior group is. So in the case of Germany, it was Jews. In the case of India, it's, you know, Muslims. Dalits or Muslims. Uh, the, the definition of the members of the hierarchy may change, but the hierarchy is the point. The lack of democracy, the lack of self-rule self from, from the bottom, and especially the lack of women's control over their own bodies because you can't keep manufacturing over and over again a hierarchy if uh, you can't maintain racism, you can't maintain the purity of the Aryan race versus the Jews and so on, unless you control reproduction. In fact, uh, one of the reasons that Hitler came to power was that he cashed in on the backlash to feminism, uh, which, were, which happened during the Weimar Republic, uh, because more women were out in uh, the public domain. They were in parliament. Um, they were in the workforce. Uh, they had changed their hairstyles. They were cutting, you know, hair was short, skirts were shorter. Um, they were demanding childcare. Uh, they were demanding equal wages. And to many people who had come back from the war, many soldiers, and uh, people who felt humiliated, uh, you know, that Germany had lost the First World War, they, uh, what Hitler did was turn this idea of humiliation into the fact that um, this was an idea of masculinity which would feed his fascist uh, ideology. And that was to say that um, you all were humiliated because you lost the war, and the war, you lost the war because you lost your masculinity. And you lost your masculinity because uh, you let women out of the house and, uh, you know, the entire family structure broke down. Uh, this, this, the three Ks that you speak about. Uh, and uh, he said, I will restore family values. And of course, the things that he wanted to restore as family values was, um, uh, you know, he wanted to put women back in the house. He wanted to make sure women would produce, and he mentions the number again and again in different pamphlets and speeches, four children. I'm talking about women of the right race, uh, the Aryan race, and uh, the other races had to serve uh, the families which were producing the Aryan children, so they could act as cooks, as maids, as cleaners, or just be sent off to concentration camps. Um, and he also uh, produced... Um, pamphlets on racial hygiene and all of that and you know what the role of the women was but at the same time he banned uh, or created quotas in universities uh, for women so he limited the number of women who could go in for higher education thing, saying this is not the role of women so and banned abortion women were jailed for having abortions and something similar seems to be going on now not in policy but at least in rhetoric in both our countries. So while it's not there in policy, it seems like a precursor to fascism coming to America. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I just want your thoughts on that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> well, it is there in his policy and, and in the policy of, of many uh, authoritarian religious groups state by state mm -hmm. where they're closing family planning and uh, abortion clinics by various subterfuge of you know requiring them to 
have the conditions of a hospital, which makes no sense. The, the, actually, the, um, the anti-birth control, anti-abortion movement here murdered at least eight people, you know, and they seemed surprised over time that this didn't make them popular. So they switched <laughs> from, uh, <clears throat> from actually murdering doctors and, and firebombing clinics to using various uh, artificial regulations to close down clinics, but the p purpose is the same. Now, I, I th it does start with controlling reproduction, both in order to control women's bodies so that they will be forced to produce workers and soldiers and so on of the right race, and also to uh, keep them from having children with the wrong race, whether it's Jews or black Americans or, you know, whatever the, the quote-unquote wrong group is, it does start with controlling reproduction. It is all about hierarchy and declaring a particular group um, superior by birth. My, my, you know, my confusion, and I've been mulling over this for some months now, is, is it about hierarchy or is it about uh, war? And, uh, well, you can't, I mean, I, I would say, you know, just as you can't control half the human race, can't control the other half of the human race without violence, because we're all human beings, right? So patriarchy can't exist without violence. And racism or a, the elevation of a particular class or caste can't exist without violence because we're all human beings. I mean, we're, we're actually equal. We all have mm. the same kinds of capabilities. So yeah. only violence can maintain a hierarchy. That's right. And also, yeah, well, yeah, maybe it's all linked together, but sometimes I feel, is it this war machinery which is promoting fascism, or is fascism promoting the war machinery? Mm -hmm. I think fascism can exist without war machinery uh, because people are not, that different, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, races and castes and so on are not that different in real life. So you, I mean, the reason there's so much violence against women is because half the human race can't dominate the other half without violence. We are not unequal, in fact. Yeah, absolutely. Because in India, too, you know, when you were talking about uh, how the control of women's bodies and their reproduction is integral to creating a hierarchy in fascism. What's going on is that, um, you know, our, uh, we have a vigilante group which was created in the 1920s uh, called the RSS, which was set up after one of its founders went and met with Mussolini and visited the Fascist Academy of Physical Education and corresponded with Hitler and thought that India needed to reject Hinduism and, uh, you know, needed to create a militant ideology, which they called Hindutva. And based on that ideology, what they wanted to really do was uh, create a group of people who would guard a certain lifestyle of upper caste uh, Hindus. And at the expense of everyone else who was living in the subcontinent. And um, the first act, of course, was the assassination of Mahatma Gandhi, who was trying to end all hierarchies in the process of the freedom struggle between caste, between sexes, between rich and poor. But then this, what happened was they were banned then and when the ban was revived, uh, removed, they created a political arm, um, and which is the ruling party right now, the BJP. 
And between them, what they have done now is that leaders of this political party and of this vigilante group have actually created uh, vigilante squads to ban inter-race and inter-caste marriages. And they call inter-race and inter-caste marriages love jihad, saying that Muslims and Dalits are marrying uh, upper-caste Hindu women as a way of conquest and colonizing. And it's up to these uh, warriors, these vigilantes, to protect the upper caste Hindu woman. And so they've created something called Romeo squads. And these squads prowl the countryside. And uh, if young men and young women are dating in a public place and they are from different religions and castes, they are not just separated, but sometimes they are killed. And very recently, uh, there was also a very um, strange case in an Indian court where a girl who went to college got married to um, a Muslim man, fell in love with the Muslim man and married him and changed her name to Hadia. She's 24 years old. And uh, these vigilante squads actually went to court and said that she's the victim of love jihad and so she needs to be separated from this man and she needs to be kept in custody uh, and this marriage is not legal. And the court under no law of the land because the woman kept insisting I love the man. Her husband kept insisting he loved his wife. But they could do nothing because the Kerala High Court actually agreed to this and she was separated and sent to her parents' house and there were 13 uh, police officers who were always standing at the gate. In any case, the husband fought the case, it went up to the Supreme Court and finally the couple is reunited. But uh, without changing policy, they were able to break the law to enforce what they wanted. So there's vigilantism at mm. like in a park, but it's also at the highest level into mm. courts. But if it were the other way around, if it was a Hindu, especially high caste man, uh, even raping a Dalit woman, that would have been all right. In fact, Gloria, you're, you know, there's actually a case like that. Right. I mean, so, there was a judge, as I remember, who actually said a Dalit woman cannot be raped by definition. That's right. In mm -hmm. in Rajasthan, there was a woman called Bhavri Devi who was raped and they, uh, by an upper caste man. And he said, but an upper caste man can never rape a Dalit woman. <laughs> <laughs> so it is about... Um, it, it is about the, the cult of masculinity and male dominance and so on, because just as with our racist system here, it was okay for white men to rape and have children with black women, but the prospect of white women and black men was so horrific that it was the dominant explanation for lynching. Whether it was true or not, that was how lynching was explained. And that's exactly what's happening with cow vigilantism and with love jihad. Is That is the basis of the explanation in India. Do you think that the fact that um, racism, you know, there was so much uh, effort to tackle racism in America and, uh, you know, it seemed that we had tackled it to a large extent with so many laws and so many uh, cases which became precedents and all of that. And it seems now that, you know, there is a move to undo all of that. Does that show that fascism is here? Or has the fact that we were not able to confront racism led to this fascism coming in, creeping in? Well, I think it's both things because we did not properly 
really own up to the legacy of, of slavery and racism. I, it seems to me that Germany has done a better job of teaching what happened during the Holocaust than we have in our schools here, teaching what went on uh, during slavery and what continues as, as quite severe racism because of slavery. We, you know, we just, we haven't dug it up really and, and looked at it and understood how, how, how serious it still is. Um, but it, the, the point, in whatever degree, the point is the same, which is to create a hierarchy based on birth in which the upper caste is dominant and that is the beginning of a fascist system. Do you think um, the kind of people we saw in Charlottesville, you know, their hoods were off and they were boasting uh, about, you know, killing people and hating Muslims and black people, etc. Like, do you think, uh, would you call it uh, the precursor to fascism? Well, they call in themselves America. nationalists and fascists. They're not a very big or influential group. And in this country, in a general way, the people who cling to this old hierarchy is no more than 40% of the country and probably more like a third. They look at this country and they see that in very short order, we will no longer be a majority white country. Uh, and the first generation of babies that is majority babies of color has already been born. So they are in backlash against the majority. They feel they're, they're losing their rightful place in a, in a birth-based hierarchy. So the 30 or 40% of the country that is fighting for male superiority, race superiority, uh, you know, all, all kinds of um, hierarchies, not always because they're doing well, sometimes because they're doing poorly. I mean, it's, it's the, the man who says to me when I'm out lecturing, the white middle-aged man who says, a black woman took my job. Mm. And I always say to him, well, who said it was your job? <laughs> you know, because it's a sense of entitlement <laughs> that is the problem. But he didn't invent this system, but he his whole identity is attached to the idea that by birth he deserves that job. And that's what we're struggling with here. But then what else? You know, because this election, while it has proven that, you know, great hope uh, that, you know, uh, Congress has uh, elected people who have who represent the most diverse and the most um, interesting backgrounds a native american uh, a muslim um, you know and so many women so, and so many young people you know who uh, one was a waitress she said i don't even know how i'm going to survive uh, till i get actually begin functioning as a congresswoman because i can't be a waitress right now so you know it is it is fascinating to see what america has elected in congress but the other thing is that we did lose to uh, uh, to senate seats proving that america is so racially divided it is so racially divided right now However, the new members of Congress who are African-American were elected in majority white districts. So that's interesting in itself, you know, because that hasn't happened before. So I think two things are going on at the same time. 
not of equal weight. It's more like two-thirds, one-third, you know, which is that two-thirds of the country has been changed, at least in our consciousness, by um, the, all the social justice movements, whether it's the civil rights movement, the women's movement, uh, the environmental movement. There, there is a rejection of, of an old hierarchy, and that is exactly uh, the reason why we have such a deep, angry, scared backlash among the other third of the country. Uh, sometimes we forget that the most dangerous time is right after a victory. And because we did succeed in changing the majority consciousness, because we had eight years of Obama, the first African-American chief of state, uh, you know, there, there was this backlash, but again, it doesn't have the majority of the vote. I mean, he lost by six million votes. It's because of the peculiarity of our voting system. And the Electoral College actually was uh, instituted by slave states in the first place. I mean, it, you know, it doesn't have a good, a good history. It's not that it isn't dangerous. It is dangerous because a third of the country could win. But it's important to remember that we are not equally divided. You know, it is not 50-50, nothing like that. That's true. That's very, very true to remember that, to give us strength, and to know we are stronger, actually. Mm. <laughs> you know, we just have to keep at it. Yes, because, the you know, there's a great emphasis among the what you might call the liberal majority, to say, uh, and I, I don't disagree with this, you know, how can we talk to each other? How can we, you know, solve our differences? I mean, I agree that we should try to do that. But it does worry me a little bit when we say that, because women especially, and I think some men too, but especially women, if you put us in a room and there were 100 people over on the right side who were absolutely convinced and wanted to go and do off this, do this uh, important, courageous thing. And then there were 20 over in the other corner that said, no, I'm not going to do that. We would go try to convince the 20. We instead, would. <laughs> instead of moving with the 100. I always do that. <laughs> right. I'm more concerned about the 20. Right. You know? right. So we have, but we have to cut that out, you know, because our, perhaps that's because our model of of leadership and social organization is the family. So you don't put someone out of the family. Uh, but the, uh, the kind of organization that we're striving for, a democracy, is one that is composed of many different parts. You know, So we need to move forward with the majority and not insist on un unanimity, which we will never get. I know, but, uh, you know, but one of the things you speak about, actually, talking about unanimity, at least consensus. So you say that the model of democracy was, uh, what Engels was talking about, was the Iroquois nation, mm -hmm. which actually uh, would meet together and build consensus. So then, um, that is your idea of a model democracy, which is about building not unanimity, but consensus. Yes, but which is, which means compromise. I mean, which means... Uh, because, uh, first of all, there were different in, in the Iroquois Confederacy, the Haudenosaunee, which was composed of the six nations that covered most of this huge continent of North America. There, there were concentric talking circles uh, that in, in which everyone could speak and 
it was about consensus and compromise and mounted up, you know, toward uh, smaller groups. That, so th it was this that our constitution was, was based on. Yeah, and you know, the thing is that now when I think about like, and I've been studying fascism a lot this summer, because what happened was that um, a poster was released uh, this March um, by the same vigilante group, a front organization of the vigilante group, with two uh, lizards, blood spots, and the faces of 35 or so people on it with a phone number uh, asking people to report in anything they knew about these people. And I was one of the faces on the poster. And uh, the headline of the poster was propaganda arm of the left wing. And I was thinking, I said, what propaganda? We are the ones talking about facts. <laughs> and, you know, how do we become propaganda? And uh, I tried to track down the number and I found it belonged to a man in a slum. But then I found the man in the slum uh, worked for a think tank, which was of this vigilante group, the RSS. And so I did file a police complaint saying, should anything happen to me, then uh, it should be um, attributed to this person and this group of people. But also, uh, you know, the reason I did it, I would not have taken it so seriously 25 years ago. And uh, but now I did because uh, last year a friend of mine was shot dead uh, outside her home in Bangalore and she was a journalist a little older than me and she was reporting, investigating a story against these groups and relentlessly publishing it in her own newspaper. And uh, so I feel sometimes I worry that, you know, uh, in India, two people would say fascism can never come to India. It's too diverse. It is too... Um, chaotic, uh, you know, and the states will resist and all of that, you know. And fascism doesn't come till it comes. If if we recognize it as what is coming, it might be easier to uh, counter it no, now. Yes, no, we absolutely, we should always recognize uh, injustice and the lack of democracy and the uh, promotion of a hierarchy based on birth, not on accomplishment or talent or anything that's changeable. It, it's, it's always dangerous. We have come out of a long period in which it was much more accepted because in, certainly in my growing up years, uh, being a female person and or a black person and, or, you know, was, you were much less likely to be able to progress in society than you are now, but of course we still have huge, huge, huge injustices. Yeah, but that, that's what I'm saying, that we can say it's unjust and it's racist, and these are words which we've used. Are there any instances in history, or no, forget history, because history we don't even know, there was only this one instance of fascism that we know about, uh, and uh, it ended with war, And but is there anything that you can, any kind of tips that you can give us that how do we uh, counter this thing? At least it's at a much earlier stage in America. Well, it, it, it is called democracy in a general way, although democracy has covered a multitude of sins, racism and sexism and, you know, no votes for black men or women, you know. But democracy was the goal. So I th one thing that's helpful is to remember that democracy starts with power over our own bodies, men and women. By that measure, women have almost never lived in a democracy because we've almost never been able to decide when and whether to have children 
and been safe from violence, which patriarchy needs in order to control us and therefore reproduction. But it's still democracy as a goal, as we understand it, which, uh, and need to define it better because we've called, we called ourselves a democracy when there was slavery. You know? We called ourselves a democracy before women could vote. We're still calling ourselves a democracy when women don't have power over our own bodies and when uh, the police and other authority figures are still demonstrably racist. But democracy is still a pretty good goal, self-governance from the body outward. It's always aspirational, but it's always something good to aspire to, more equality and more dignity. But, uh, you know, you always said that, and this is something which uh, intrigues me, and may explain something which is going on because you know the fact that women are colonized first inside the home uh, um, you know uh, ha then helps us uh, or not helps us actually but normalizes for us the idea of the head of the family and then we go on to vote mm -hmm. ahead of the family into power and you've written that in your essay if hitler were alive mm -hmm. whose side yeah would he no be on? if 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 we don't have democratic families we'll never really have a democracy because if we have hierarchical families, we will normalize that because we experienced it in childhood and we will continue to assume that a certain amount of hierarchy is okay. Yeah, gender digs a trench into our brain into which <laughs> all other inequalities fall. <laughs> and uh, you, know, you also go on to say that uh, in the same essay, if Hitler were alive, whose side would he be on? that, uh, you know, because we normalize that kind of inequality, that it's all right for one group of human beings to order and one to obey, uh, you know, we, we allow other inequalities to happen as well. But also it becomes our comfort area that, you know, we want someone else to take the decisions, we want someone else's approval, and so we do that. Do you think that would explain to a large extent, why women are voting along race lines uh, in the United States? Well, not women in general are voting along race lines, but it is, it is true that 51% um, of white married women, mostly not college educated, voted for Trump, whereas 90% of black women voted for Hillary Clinton. So it's, it's not complete uh, as a racial division. And as I was saying, the, the new black members of Congress were uh, elected in, in white districts. And of course, President Obama was elected mostly by white voters. So it's, it's, it's not complete, but it is out of balance, absolutely, right? And you know, my last uh, thought, which I've been grappling with also, is that sometimes, you know, um, the white liberal uh, group in America, um, you know, the old ones, you know, they don't quite understand what's going on in the rest of the world. And so while they will fight um, uh, fascism here, hierarchy here, different kinds of uh, race inequality and all of that here, uh, you know, they will not uh, stand shoulder to shoulder with similar struggles abroad. No, I agree with you that there's, uh, there is unequal knowledge because this country dominates media so much that people know this country better, way better than the people in this country know other countries. Yeah, that's right. So any tips 
<laughs> well, I, I think it's important to do exactly what you're doing and explaining what's going on in India and that, that uh, the women's studies courses were wiped out coast to coast and the press, free press is being restricted and there are murders going on uh, every day. Yeah, right, and students right. are on the run. Can you imagine students not going to university but running from pillar to post to not going to jail? Mm. Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it, this is a case in which movements need to talk to each other because the official forms of communication are not. It, we, should, we should strategize how to get more people on interview shows saying what you are saying. That would be helpful. Uh, how to publicize websites that where one can get the the news that is factual and accurate about India. That would be very helpful. And what does feminism in the time of fascism mean? Uh, well, it means full time revolt because fascism starts with controlling women's bodies. So it's perfectly clear to us <laughs> from from the beginning, you know, that this is. Uh, the adversary. Yeah. Otherwise, we're literally cooked. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's, that's where it starts. You know, that's certainly, that's where Hitler started. I mean, you know, he, the, among the first things, maybe the first thing he did was to padlock the family planning clinics and declare abortion a crime against the state. He ran on a platform of keeping women in their traditional role. Um, it's so interesting to me how he managed to present the Aryan, the blue-eyed blonde Aryan race as, uh, you know, the goal when he himself was this short, dark-haired, <laughs> mustachioed guy. <laughs> right? Mind it's wolf, completely mind. irrational, right? Horrible, horrible. Yeah, he was compensating for what he was not or what he aspired to. But, you know, there's one more thing uh, I just remembered when you mentioned that, that you explained how a fascist is born, you know, how a fascist is created. And you said that, um, I remember we were talking about Eichmann, and they only know two things, how to order or to obey. Mm -hmm. And uh, Well, he, uh, Eichmann, talked about, uh, you know, after he was taken captive and, bef you know, before he was tried, <clears throat> about his childhood in which he was he he was beaten he was not allowed the smallest decision he was his every move was policed and he transferred that annihilation of self and devotion to obeying authority to Hitler he 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 actually lived in Israel to get to know Jews better so he could persecute them better uh he his 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 idea of what was praiseworthy and good was following orders he was eviscerated of his sense of self there's the 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 man who was the head of the um israeli group that uh found eichmann in argentina and captured him wrote a book about this whole process. And he, after he had been captured, he, you know, he was living as a middle-class person. He had a family. He was living quietly in Argentina. 
this um, this Israeli man, whose name I don't remember, a wonderful man, was assigned to keep him in an apartment for a period of time until they could secretly smuggle him back to Israel for a, for a trial. He was not supposed to talk to him, but of course you can't not talk to someone you know that you're looking after and keeping in an apartment. And he described Eichmann, um, who had been living on his own, but the minute he was captured, he completely capitulated. He asked, they would feed him food. He would ask, may I take my first bite now? He would sit on the toilet. He would ask, may I defecate now? He was completely uh, eviscerated of any self-authority because he had grown up in such a hierarchy and transferred his adult life into Hitler's hierarchy. He only understood hierarchy. The, the, uh, the Israeli said at the end of the book that if someone had asked him how to fight fascism before this experience, he would have said many things. Now, he said, it's how we raise our children. That is the single most important thing. I think I'll end there. <laughs> That's good. <laughs>